We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Game of My Life, New York Mets, the author, Michael Gary. Please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse both the author, Michael Gary, and our special guest from the 1969 World Champions, Ed Charles. And now I'd like to uh, turn it over to Michael, the author of this book, just to has a few comments, a few things he'd like to yeah, talk about. Th thanks, Jay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for everybody for coming tonight. Um, this is such a great store. I mean, everywhere you look, a wonderful piece of memorabilia. Willits Point Shea Stadium, that's, that's a familiar one. Uh, of course, they changed the name of Shea, they changed the stadium, but still, it's, it brings back memories. Yeah, it's kind of Dodger Stadium, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, thanks for coming, and I'm, I'm very honored, of course, to have with me uh, the glider, Mr. Ed Charles, um, who will uh, uh, talk about uh, his career and the game of his life, which is uh, portrayed in my book. And um, you might even re uh, recite a poem or two, right, Ed? Because <laughs> Ed, among his many talents, is, is, a, is a fine poet who's written some wonderful poems that I've had the pleasure of reading. So a um, little bit about myself and, and, the, and the book. Um, I'm, I'm not a sports writer. I'm, I'm basically a Mets fan who uh, stumbled upon an opportunity to, to write this book which uh, has really uh, just, just a been a great experience. I, I'm, a, I'm a business and environmental writer by trade. Uh, I edit a magazine on environmental systems. And um, you know, I just uh, happened to have a few connections to, to the Mets through, through Mets bloggers. That's as close as I actually got to, to, uh, to the Mets. I know uh, some of you may be familiar with Greg Prince, who does the uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing blog, which is a wonderful blog if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. It's probably the best written uh, blog out there. He's a, he, uh, Greg Prince and his uh, colleague, Jason Fryer, are terrific writers. I know they were friends, and um, I also uh, worked in one of the trade magazines that I worked at with a fellow named uh, John Springer, um, who is a uh, blogger as well. He does a blog called Mets by the Numbers, uh, which is basically everything you ever wanted to know about uniform numbers worn by the, by the Mets. It's, a, it's a, a very a fun site, too, if you get a chance to look at it. Anyway, uh, John wrote a book for the publisher of this, called uh, Skyhorse Publishing. John wrote a book for them about the uniform numbers for the Mets. They approached him and said, John, would you like to write a book about game, the game of my life of a lot of different Mets players? And he couldn't do it, uh, and I was uh, available. I, I, I had worked with him uh, at this magazine, and I had become a freelance writer, so I had some flexibility in my schedule. He referred the publisher, the, his editor, to me, and they, I got a call one day, and the, guy, and the woman said, how would you like to write a book about the Mets? And I was like, wow, that, that, that sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was really flabbergasted. Uh, it was kind of came out of the blue. Because again, I, you know, I, I'm not a sports writer, but I'm a Mets fan from '62 when I went to the Polo ground, Grounds at seven years old, and uh, you know, so she said, "Well, yeah, you know, uh, uh, John referred uh, us to you, and we, you 
know, you're, you know, you're a good writer, you're a Mets fan, you'd have to uh, contact a whole a bunch of former and current Mets and ask them to talk about the game of their life. And uh, I said, uh, gee, you know, that, that sounds like a really fun idea. You know, I, I, you know I, I, I couldn't resist it, obviously. I mean, it was like, I had to do it. So I said I would do it. It's, it, was not, it did not come with a huge uh, advance, but that was irrelevant because this is the Mets we're talking about, my team. And, uh, you know, I just, I just thought it was a, a wonderful opportunity. So, you know, I basically uh, had to figure out how to do this book, how to contact the Mets and how to, you know, actually do interviews with, with real live Mets who would talk about their, their most memorable game. So, uh, you know, I went about this, this process. I mean, as a, as a longtime journalist, I had some experience, you know, making phone calls and bothering people and stuff like that. So I, I didn't have any uh, trouble with that. So I, you know, I uh, reached out, you know, first to some Mets who I thought, you know, it would be interesting. I, I, I contacted Benny Agbayani in Hawaii, left a message at his high school where he was working and and, and sure enough, the next day, I, I get a phone call on my cell phone. It's Benny Agbayani. I was like, blew my mind. And uh, I thought, maybe, wow, maybe I can actually do this. You know, it's, it was uh, very encouraging. I always, I always be indebted to Benny as being the first guy to, to return my phone call. And, um, but you know, the other, uh, and then, uh, and of course, through Greg Prince, I, I heard about an event at City Field involving uh, Edgardo Alfonso and Bud Harrelson. They were, they were doing a, an event uh, a wiffle ball event in the parking lot at City Field where, where Shea Stadium used to be. And it was a wiffle ball event uh, to raise money for the boys club. And I, I got myself uh, invited to that and met Fonzie and met Bud and was able to, to get interviews with them about the game, games of their life. But um, the, the, big, the big breakthrough uh, for me, um, and, and you know, because it, this is a real, you can imagine, uh, not being in the baseball world, it was a challenge to, to get these players to talk to me. And I had met, uh, years ago, I, I went to spring training in uh, Port St. Lucie in the late 80s. I, I met Gary Carter. And, and uh, I was able to tell uh, Gary Carter that I had run into his father-in-law at, at a trade convention. So I, you know, I, he, was, he was sort of interested in that. So I had a conversation with him. And he signed the ball. And, and uh, you know, but I didn't, you know, that, that was uh, kind of a, a you know, meeting Gary Carter's uh, father-in-law. I didn't know any other fathers-in-law, so I didn't know really. It was, it was, a, it was a challenge. But, but I came upon the idea of, uh, and some of you people may, may be familiar with Fantasy Camp, Mets Fantasy Camp. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, they have it at the spring training facility in Port St. Lucie. And I, I, I decided that I would, you know, I wasn't going to fork over five grand to play ball for a week, but I thought maybe they could invite me as, as a guest where I could you know, interview some of the former players who were there. And so I, I was able to do that. The Mets organization uh, uh, allowed me to come down to Port St. Lucie. So I was there that I, I was able to interview people like, uh, you know, Ron Swoboda and, and, and John Stearns and, um, you know, people, uh, uh, and Felix Mian, people like that. So that really helped a lot in terms of meeting the old players. And they're all profiled in the book. Um, and basically, each chapter uh, is is a, about the game of their life. You know, I asked them, uh, you know, to give to tell me what what was the game that, that really stood out. And, and um, you know, in, in the case of Ed Charles, uh, the game of his life was uh, Game Two of the '69 World Series. He had a great uh, game. He, he uh, uh, in the ninth inning, he 
He, uh, 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 with two outs, hit a, hit a, a single left field, which and then scored what turned out to be the winning run in that game, game two, which is their first victory in the series. He also made the final out of the, in, the, in the bottom of the ninth. This is in Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And of course, they went on to win, to, to win the World Series after that. So that was a, a turning point in the series, and, and Ed was instrumental in, in uh, making that happen. So, so that was the game of Ed's life. And, you know, I spoke to uh, Ed Cranepool, had a funny, you know, some of the, the games they picked were kind of unusual. The game Ed Cranepool picked was the 23 inning, uh, second game of a doubleheader in 64, where, you know, they, they played a, a full nine innings in the first games against the Giants, and then played 23 more innings. And the game of his life is that 23-inning game. Hey, we got a Mets fan here. Let's do that. <laughs> but uh, so you know, I, that that was uh, struck me as an interesting choice. And of course, the Mets lost that game in the 23rd inning. Better get something uh, you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> ball dog. But, uh, so you know, th there was a lot of interesting experiences in, in finding out the you know the various games that that uh, these players selected as the game of their life. Um, Basically, I interviewed 21 different myths about the game. And it was, um, of course, I couldn't get every player I wanted to. Uh, some of them, uh, so, so, you know, some of the big name players eluded me. Seaver um, declined. You know, I, I contacted him in his vineyard in, in California, and uh, his, uh, his, I think it's his niece told me he's, you know, he's dealing with, uh, uh, you know, he's health issues and couldn't couldn't do it, but. Um, but he's kind of captured in the book because in the Swoboda chapter, Swoboda, the game of Swoboda's life was, was uh, the, a game four of the series, 69 series, where he made the diving catch. And of course, Seaver was the starting pitcher in that game. And I quoted Seaver from another uh, book saying that that was really a game where his life flashed before his eyes. So, you know, I kind of feel like Seaver's represented in, this, in the Swoboda chapter. And, um, you know, Doc Gooden, I saw him at fantasy camp and in another another event, and you know, ultimately he told me the game of his life was when he pitched a no hitter for the Yankees. So, you know that <laughs> that, 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 that ruined that. You know, and, and you know that was when his dad was ill, and I think that was the last game his dad saw him uh, pitch. And you know, so, you know, that was Doc. And then uh, Strawberry actually, uh, when I, I used to write about supermarkets, and I actually uh, interviewed him at a supermarket several years ago. Not about the Mets, but about his charity. You know, uh, he's involved in uh, various charities, uh, helping the supermarket in, in the lo uh, low-income area in the Bronx. And uh, but uh, but uh, you know, Daryl. I think I asked Daryl at another event, "What's the game is like?" And he said, "I don't know. There's just so many. It's it's hard to choose just one." You know, that's Daryl. So, but uh, you know, I have chapters on the '86 Mets, uh, Wally Backman. Uh, and Tuffle or, or, and, and Mookie Wilson are, are, are uh, captured in the book in terms of their, their games of their life. Of course, Mookie, uh, and that's a, great, that's a great picture of Mookie up there, uh, is um, famous for the Buckner game, and, and I talk about that in the book. There were a few players that I, I didn't get to interview in person, but I wanted to get in the book. Actually, Mookie was one of them. Piazza uh, on his 9-11, uh, post-9-11 home run. Um, <coughs> Uh, uh, Santana on the no-hitter, and David Wright uh, talks a lot about 
what the 2006 playoffs meant to him. It was the, the, the biggest moment of his Mets career was making the playoffs in 06. Of course, now we've made the playoffs again, and, and hopefully he'll have another game of his life to talk about uh, pretty soon, uh, maybe tomorrow night. Who knows? But, uh, so so those, the, the, those four players, I based my, uh, those chapters on public information about the game of their life. But the other 21 uh, are all uh, direct interviews with the players, either at fantasy camp, over the phone. I, I sent a letter to Bobby Jones, who pitched a one-hitter in, in the 2000 playoffs, and it went to, the, to a, a different guy named Bobby Jones, uh, who lives in California. And that guy handed it off to the pitcher, Bobby Jones, and, so, and he ended up responding to my letter. So he's got a, a chapter about his great one-hitter uh, performance. And, uh, you know, the, it's, uh, the, the, the chapters span the entire history of the club. We start with Al, uh, little Al Jackson from the 62 Mets uh, talking about uh, the game where he pitched 15 innings and lost in 64, uh, or 62, I should say. And, um, and it goes right up to the present. With uh, I, I went to spring training also and, and spoke to Travis Darnot. He's in here, Dan Murphy, uh, uh, and John Neese. So, so we have some current Mets, and it goes all the way back throughout the history to the beginning. And of course, you know, the Mets, the Mets have a lot of uh, interesting characters in their, in their history. Uh, you know, um, kind of unheralded players that, that sort of rise to the occasion, like you see Wilmer Flores and, and, and Bartolo Colon becoming like folk hit figures <laughs> these days. And back uh, in the day, we had Benny Agbayani was a folk hero in, in 2000. And, and uh, Todd Pratt hit the you know, game-winning homer against the against the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks in, 60, in, the, in the 99 uh, playoffs. So he became kind of a heroic figure, or, or a, really a journeyman player, but rose to incredible heights for at least that one game. And, and he talked to me. Uh, I, saw, I met Todd Pratt at, at, at fantasy camp, and he was welling up talking about the home run that he hit and what it meant to see the Shea Stadium go berserk. I mean, it was a great, it was incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, and then, you know, the Mets have had some kind of uh, odd characters in their history. I mean, uh, you know, guys like Turk Wendell, uh, you know, talked about all his superstitions. And, you know, it, it, there's really a lot of information about the team and, and, you know, tragic comic figures like Anthony Young. I met at fantasy camp. He of the 27 consecutive losses in a row, he talked. And, and, and he didn't really pitch that badly during that streak, which is really weird. But he talked to me about that, and he's a great guy. And uh, you know, um, of course, we have some of the, the great the great Met players. Fonzie talked about a, when he went six for six with three home runs and 16 total bases in a game against the Astros in '99. One of the great offensive outbursts of any player in, in baseball history. Uh, so he, you know, he he was very proud of that. And uh, of course, you know, the Piazza Piazza chapter. Um, you know, very, very uh, moving to talk about, you know, what, this, what it felt like, you know, like a week or 10 days after 9-11, and they played the first game in New York, and Piazza hit that, you know, momentous, memorable home run. So that, that was uh, certainly a, a, a great, great thing to write about. So that kind of gives you a, a flavor uh, for the book. Uh, I just want to talk a bit about Ed, uh, uh, who I'm, I'm very happy to have with us here. Um, of course, Ed is uh, nicknamed the Glider. He got that from uh, got that from Jerry Kuzman back in the back in the, in the day, and 
you know, uh, Ed came to the Mets in 67 uh, from the Kansas City A's, and he uh, led the Mets in homers in 68, the year of the pitcher. So it wasn't a lot of homers, but it was he led the team in homers. And uh, in 69, of course, he was the elder statesman for the for the Miracle Mets of 69. He was he was Gil Hodges' right hand man, hel helping Gil deal with all the young, you know. Phenoms on the teams, deceivers and the gentries and Kuzmans. And of course, Ed had a, a, a big home run in the division clincher on September 24th, 1969. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned, his uh, you know, great uh, performance in, in game two of the 69 series against the, the Orioles, where he, he singled for left at the top of the ninth and, and ultimately scored the winning run on, on Al Weiss's single. And Al Weiss was a Another unheralded guy who, who rose to great great heights in the '69 series. Uh, the uh, bottom of the ninth, uh, Ed made the final out uh, off a ground ball, the third off Brooks Robinson, and and uh, they never looked back. But just as important as his on-field achievements, you know, Ed Ed really contributed to the game as a, as kind of a disciple of, of Jackie Robinson, who. You know, because Ed, like Jackie, withstood a lot of the indignities of playing baseball in, uh, in the minor leagues during the 50s uh, in the South. So Ed, Ed really uh, had to pay some serious dues, just like Jackie Robinson, to, to, in order to help integrate the, game, the great game of baseball. And uh, you know, Jackie was Ed's, Ed's hero, his role model, and it's only fitting that, if, as many of you probably know, Ed was portrayed in the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson. It was Ed, it was portrayed as a kid who rooted for Jackie in Florida during spring training in 46 and 47. And, uh, you know, uh, and that inspired Ed to go on and become a ball player and to, and to persevere and to, and of course he went out on top, he went out a world champion. And uh, Ed got to know Jackie uh, just before he died uh, in 72 and he wrote a beautiful, beautiful poem about Jackie Robinson. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, Ed is, is a, He's written a lot of poetry about, about ball players and about social justice. I just want to read a, a, a brief, briefly from, uh, from uh, the Ed Charles chapter, and then I'll turn it over to Ed. Charles, and this is about his meeting with Jackie Robinson. Charles pursued several paths after his retirement as a player. He first tried his hand at some business ventures, including a foray into music promotion at Buddha Records followed by an attempt at a startup that marketed baseball novelties. Though the latter didn't succeed, it did lead to another serendipitous encounter with his idol in 1972. Yeah, that was something, Charles said. I was trying to get a little novelty business started. At the time, Jackie was trying to get a construction business off the ground. We both had appointments at the Small Business Administration in Manhattan. Jackie's appointment was after mine. When we were wrapping up my appointment, they said, hey, guess who's coming in next? I said, who? Jackie Robinson. I said, Jackie Robinson? I got to meet him and thank him. So they said, okay. I could just picture this. As I approached Jackie, I was like that 12-year-old kid, very nervous. I started telling him that he was my idol for so long and that I looked up to him and I tried to emulate him. I told him, I just want to thank you for enduring what you had to go through to open the doors up for blacks, stuff like that. He was very gracious. He said, quote, I really appreciate that. You're the first black player to personally approach me and thank me like that. Charles didn't want to leave it there, so he arranged to meet Robinson at his office 
in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, a few weeks later. At this second meeting, quote, I had him all to myself, Ed said. I was sitting there with a man whom I had idolized since I first met him in Daytona Beach. I'm just running my mouth like crazy. We talked about everything, baseball, social issues, everything. And I tell you, I felt like I was on cloud nine, having him be that close. A few weeks after that meeting, October 24, 1972, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, who had suffered from diabetes, died of a heart attack at the age of 53. Quote, I really, literally cried when I got the news over the radio, Charles said. It was like a thunderbolt hit me. He was encouraged, though, to write down how he felt about Robinson. The poem reads in part, quote, yes, he made his mark for all to see as he struggled determinedly for dignity, and the world is grateful for the legacy that he left for all humanity. So that, uh, and with that, I think I'll close my remarks. I want to thank you again for coming, and uh, uh, we're going to take questions. But first, Mr. Charles, we'll have a few remarks. Thank you. <laughs> I recently celebrated my 82nd birthday. And I happened to meet this gentleman here, Michael. And for some reason, I, I sort of like him. <laughs> Thanks, sir. So anytime Michael calls or whatever, whatever I can do, I'm there for him, okay? And this first for me, I've never been here in Mr. Goldberg dugout and I'm impressed with all the memorabilia stuff you have here. It's great promoting the game and stuff like that. That's super. And I consider myself very fortunate. Fortunate in that I'm a citizen citizen of the United States of America. Think about that. That means a hell of a lot. I travel extensively abroad everywhere. And when I think about our Constitution, the way it's structured, it had to be divinely inspired for the, for those gentlemen to structure our Constitution like it is. There's so much hope within those lines regardless of what grievances you have or whatever, you can do it within the framework of your constitution, etc. You don't have to take the gun and go out there and start shooting everybody to get to the next level. And that's the major reason why I'm thankful that I live in this country. And to further bear this out, here come Branch, Ricky, and Jack Robinson to bring us all to another level of tolerance. Suit down this Jim Crow system, so to speak. You know, all of you know where we came from. 
but we still are family. So to speak. Whether you like it or not, we're still a family. And we can address things and still embrace each other. And to me, that's what Zachariah was all about. And I just happened to be a little kid growing up praying to God that, see, I wish I'd be able to play Major League Ball someday because in Daytona Beach, we used to get the Dodgers game piped in through the radio. And I used to listen to the games. It sounds so exciting, you know, the way they, the announcers broadcasting the game as if you were there or wanted to be there. So given this uh, Jim Crow situation in the South at the time, that was impossible. And when Branch Lickett and Jackie got together and all of a sudden, here comes Jackie Robinson to my hometown. Now mind you, this is, this is against the law. Blacks and whites get put in jail for any type of action, okay? Now here's Jackie going to get out there on the field with white players. And my concern was that, please God, don't let nothing happen to him. Don't let nobody set upon him, you know? And I was like a very shy in those days. And Jackie here, signed to the Montreal Royals, the Dodgers Triple H Farm Club, and they trained there in Daytona Beach. And uh, matter of fact, they held their training sessions right in the harbor of the black community. Matter of fact, right across the street from where I live. And me and my little neighborhood buddies, uh, we rushed home from schools. Straight to Kelly Field, that's the name of the park, to see Jackie before they <coughs> ceased their drills for the day. <coughs> a lot of my little buddies still run up there trying to get Jackie on the ground. And I stood back and just highlighted him like he was some besides him. Too shy to go up there and ask for an autograph. So my family moved from St. Pete to, I mean, from Daytona to St. Petersburg. So while I was at St. Petersburg, when they started exhibition games, teams playing against each other, there's six teams I like to see. And not only that, that was a good chance for us to make money, little kids, you know, because what we do, we go retrieve the balls to come over the foul balls. And we'll get a, a big name like Michael here in town. <laughs> 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 and uh, I get back to Jordan, my Jordan, Stan Music, guys like that, sign the balls. And we sell it to the students, five bucks. And that was all pocket change and stuff like this. But Jackie, the Dodgers was in town and they was playing the Cardinals. And there's one scene in the 42 movie where a bunch of us kids were going to the train station looking for Jackie Robinson and see where he was seated on the train. And we sit there and wave at him and 
jack your weight back and we just break out laughing like we clown or whatever. <laughs> so it's a big deal to us. When the train start moving out, we start moving out, still waving. Like, I'm gonna bring Jackie back. Train pick up speed, we pick up speed. <laughs> but there's one, one instance about that movie that didn't happen. The only thing that didn't happen was when they, Jackie was tossing a baseball at me. Now, can you imagine if that was true? I'd be rich now. <laughs> but, but that was the only, only thing about the movie that wasn't true. But I uh, got a chance to meet him like Michael was reading the book. We both was at the Small Business Administration trying to get some capital to get out of the room. We couldn't talk to him on him. I got a chance to really know him and uh, sit and chat and all that stuff. And I, the, uh, the book said that when you pass, it just hit me real hard because I can relate to everything that he had to go through to make this breakthrough, to bring us to another level. Because when I signed my contract in the Braves organization about 1952, that's just a few years after Jackie had made it to Brooklyn for his studies. The one important factor, the South still had to be, you know, things had to be taken care of in this, on the scheme that saved the South. And unfortunate for me at the time, I spent 10 years on the contract with the Braves of Monarchs organization. Most of those years were playing in the South, so all the derogatory stuff that the Earl at Robinson, you know, was hurled at us, the guys, early blacks that had to do a little apprenticeship to raise us before they raised themselves up to the big league and, and to the northern cities were a little more tolerant of ourselves, of racial matters. And we used to call ourselves Jack and the Cypress. Jack and I sent us out there and said, okay, you guys, you go out there and break down the south. <laughs> so we had to spend years playing in the South for Jackie when he came up, you know, he was in the northern cities a little more tolerant, but we were taking all kind of hell off him. But for the most part, we kind of follow the, the tracks of Jackie. He sucked it up, took a lot of views, stuff like this, so we had to do the same thing. But now, he just became so close, so dear to me. Uh, I followed his career, everything, and I was so proud of him because you don't know what it was like. When you're in a situation like Jim Crow, a Jim Crow situation, it's like every day you wake up saying, where's the hope for people like me? You know? And 
Tuesday as I get a little emotional. Because the pain is still there. That's why I'm so thankful that we don't have to worry about stuff like that right now. We've come a long way. And I still feel the pain of Jackie and all the guys in those days. But we were determined to make it better for everybody. And I was so into Jackie. It seemed like when I got the news that he had passed, someone said, you got to capture the essence of Jackie Robinson, what he meant. And the words to his poem just pulled out. Jackie Robinson, superstar. He sucked the challenge and played the game with a passion that few men possess. He stood tall in the face of society's shame with a talent that God had blessed. He banged not hits and aroused the fans with his daring based on his skills. This great, great player, proud, proud black man, many big Biggest to threaten to kill. But he continued to pursue the impossible dream with an intensity that at times was most startling. He hears that obstacles and torment opposing teams to the delight of this vast, vast following. With a spirit of flame, though preordained by God and destiny it seemed, showed the burning of a race contained and a distant philosophic steam. He ripped up the sod along the base lines as he ran in advance of a base. Upon his feet, the yoke of his mind. Well, victory for the black man's case. He opened up opportunities, opportunities that never exist for the likes of you and me. This man from Georgia courageously assists in the dawning of a new era for me. Yes, he made his mark for all to see, and he struck a determinedly for dignity. And the world is grateful for the legacy that he left for humanity. Thanks, Jackie. Wherever you are, you will always be our first superstar. For history shall record and told, it, told and eternally proclaim your great deeds in its halls of fame. So go now, you rest for a while. Well, again, you shall come a spirit of flame in the bosom of another black child that God and destiny shall name. That was my wrap-up. I felt about my hour. That's great.
2014, January. Oh, 14, yeah. okay. But you were at Fantasy Camp back in the 1980s, Eddie. I'm curious, do you remember um, uh, an umpire, a female umpire? Yeah, I remember quite a few female umpires. Oh, really? No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> But I do remember, uh, I can't recall her name right now, but she was Was really it Perry? Yes. Oh, okay. How was she? Very good to see you, Eddie. <laughs> Long time what no see. What do you mean? This is a pleasure. <laughs> this is great. I was there every year from, you were great. We from 1985 you. when they started until... Yeah. We missed you. You yeah. did a thank wonderful you. job for us. Oh, thank you. I, you uh, know, I still, do, I still do the inter-squad, so I see Al Jackson yeah. down there uh, at uh, Port St. Louis. Right. So you still go down? I do, yes. And I would like to say, it is wonderful to see you. And if nobody has ever said to you what you said to Jackie Robinson, I would like to say thank you for living the life you have led and and playing the way you did for the Mets because it's all part of the kind of person you are. And for you to have experienced what you did and to have maintained your sense of forgiveness and, and wonder and yeah. been able to turn something so sure. hurtful into something so beautiful you through your poetry is just very, very special. And thank you for sharing that gift with Thank you for being here tonight. That's very nice. Thank you. It's like a reunion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is I funny. Were you there in 14? Quite a few years. No, I think oh, okay. the last fantasy camp I did was uh, 94. Oh, okay. Five. okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I missed uh, the Well, I missed the last two years of fantasy because you know I'm down there practically uh -huh. every year yeah. because of my medical situation. But I told the guy, Doug Dickey, he held a camp there. I told him that I'm going to be there in January this year because I want great. to have a meeting with my family. Well, I know they have some women players. Oh, yes. That's what I said. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so maybe I'll take a trip over there. And <laughs> that would be Fantasy fun. camp is a blast. I want to take a shower. <laughs> Fantasy camp is a blast. If you have any uh, oh, ability to do that, you know that. what? Yeah. Hanging with Eddie yeah. and Al Jackson, right. and you know back yeah. in the day, and Gary right. Carter, and right. Tom Seaver was there in 1991, I think. 1990. How did you feel with Tom Seaver? Why did the New York press officials Dick Young hate Seaver so much? Why did Dick Young hate yeah, Seaver? Seaver? He's a right terrible dude, a sports writer for Yale yeah. News. And he hated Seaver for some reason. Maybe Seaver didn't give him an interview or something. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But, it was uh, very racist. You said Dick was pretty. You know, he's right. Bad. He used to be very vocal about 
particularly who mentioned Stephen. He wasn't really a big Oh, I remember guy. one incident, I think, uh, that I can recall that might have touched out this situation with Dick Young. You remember when some veteran, well, Stephen had signed a contract. And he had told everybody that he was satisfied, he real free, he got what he wanted. <coughs> then I think uh, maybe then a couple months, another pitcher from another team signed a contract much higher than Steve. And Steve would go back in the office and tell wow. Grant he wanted to rework the contract. He was the first man hardly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wanted to rework his contract. And we thought that had he waited until after the season, that they, he was going to get what he wanted. But it just seemed so corny that he would, after this guy get a higher set, he want to go back and demand that the Mets get the higher set. That's the only thing that I can recall that took place that maybe <laughs> Dick Young probably wrote about it. Yeah, everybody's hero from 69, I mean, yeah. as you said, was Cooney. Just a personality thing. Excuse me, we're just uh, we're going to run short of time. I want to give everybody a chance to get one question in. Mo, one question. Yeah, it's not really a question. How did I know? Mike, you did such a thorough job. I don't have to buy the book. There's a lot more in the book than there are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm not too fond of you either. You called me out on strikes 30 years ago. It's a little high. <laughs> Mo, I'm really happy to see you because I, I wonder what happened because you just send me these little newsletters uh, every so often. All of a sudden, they stop coming. He's on top now. He's winning. <laughs> <laughs> it's starting it's starting to <coughs> back in the middle. Mo, yeah. well, how how are you gonna feel when we beat you in the, in the, in the championship series? Oh goodness. I don't think it's gonna happen because it's destiny. You know? Send me that out of the question. He sends it to me. Destin. Nineteen oh eight, Mo, well, it's a long time. Hey, nineteen oh eight was the last time Chicago won the series. I was a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> very clearly, uh -huh. and to this day, Detroit, but yeah. 
to interview at, at least 20 players across the history of the team, you know, trying to get as many, you know, a good mix, you know, big names, journeymen, you know, um, people who had interesting stories to tell, you know, had, you know, guys like, you know, Todd Fred who had, you know, incredible single game experiences that they, that they could talk about. So, I mean, I, I was just, uh, you know, trying to just, Gather, tell as many good stories as I could, you know, with at least 20 or so players, and ended up doing, uh, you know, 25 players. But, but uh, yeah, it was um, that was roughly what I had in mind. But as a Mets fan, regardless, any Met player is a big deal. Oh well, of course, of course. I mean, I grew up with these guys, and uh, you know, being able to to, to chat with them. Uh, Whoever it was 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 a great thrill. I mean, uh, you know, I, I it was I was a kid in the candy store basically in <laughs> doing this book, so I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. You know, uh, and, and you know, I mean, not everybody was cooperative as you could expect, but but enough people were cooperative that uh, it's, you know it's, I think it turned into I got a lot of good stories to tell. And the uncooperativeness did that lead to you know, temporary disappointment or you just moved on? Oh yeah, you know, I I mean, listen. The, See, I, I had a challenge, you know, they didn't know me particularly, uh, so I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't really uh, hold particular, I, I a grudge or anything like that, I, I just let it go. I mean, I was, just, I was just thrilled whenever somebody would cooperate, and uh, you know, I got, a, I got so many good stories at the end of, at the, end of the day that, uh, you know, it, it turned into something that, that I could be proud of and, and worked out pretty well. You must well. have some Jay Harwin stories, too. <laughs> That Jay's way. not my favorite person, you know, <laughs> but uh, you know he, he, he did. You are being recorded here. He did let me. He did let me take the, the he, You know, give me. He gave me a press pass for spring training 2014. He gave gave me for two days. I got to be on the field uh, with the players. Uh, I didn't have to stay behind the, the fence with the with the fans. I could get out and, and actually talk to the players. And he, he signed off on that. And uh, I'll be grateful to him for that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you had a question in the back? No? Okay. Yes. All right. Two, two questions. Uh, one is, um, you know, the 69 Mets, that's like my father's team, right. which the 86 Mets would be me. Right. So, two-part question. One is, uh, for the both of you, uh, what did you think of that 86 Mets team when you think of 69? I mean, were you kind of like making comparisons? Because that, that was a team, like, I think. Like a comparison. Meaning, like, you know, you know, like some people would say, team. like. It was a team. You trying to say, uh, 69 wasn't a team? <laughs> no, no, no. What I'm, because see, I, I didn't even see 69. What I'm basically trying to understand is, like, everybody would say, like, Met fans who were there in 69 are going to, like, think, like, 69. 69 Mets. You know, these guys won the World Series. Right. Now you're hitting 86. So naturally, one would think, I haven't experienced since. I mean, an actual win like that. Okay, since let, me, let me say this. 
is nothing like the first time. Case <laughs> <laughs> closed. Uh, the, next, the next question is, um, are you those kind of like uh, trivial Mets, like George Foster, Dave King, and you know, that 80, 82, yeah. 81, uh, young, right. young blood, right. and Dusty, like, were you able to like try and interact with those guys? Especially yeah. George Foster, because he's kind of like, yeah. Right, well, from that era, uh, I, I had, probably the big name from that era was John Stearns, you know, the catcher, uh, who, uh, he, I met him at fantasy camp. He was a, he was a great guy, very very helpful, um, and uh, you know, I would say he's probably from that era. I Felix Mian played in the late he played till about '77, I think. Um, but I, I tried to get Doug Flynn. Doug Flynn, as you may remember, is a second baseman. Hit three triples in a game, one of which is a major league record. Uh, what? And he won the gold glove, but uh, no, no, no. But he had a great, great game to talk about. Unfortunately, I couldn't get him to cooperate. So, but uh, but Stearns is probably the one from that era. I mean, that wasn't you know a real you know great era of Mets baseball. So probably you know I probably didn't emphasize that as much as like the you know the the, the late '60s, early '70s. And he, you know, uh, no, 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 Pat Sacker. Well, I, I mean, I would, I would, listen, if, if, if those guys uh, would get on the phone with me or something, I'd talk to any of them, you know. And in fact, I'm still trying to, I have a website, which I have, I have a business card with my website, and I'll be adding stories to the website uh, with other, you know, former Mets, so, so maybe I'll eventually catch up with these other guys to just, to, you know, fill up my website with, with additional stories. You need to apply. Like Skype is Jeff yeah. McKnight right now. Any, any other uh, questions? Yeah. Yes. I just want to tell Ed that my father played in Bristol, Tennessee in 1940, uh -huh. and he said the anti-Semites were just absolutely vicious. Oh, uh, yeah. It was and, you know, back in those days, it was You just want to play ball, and people tough. are just, you know. It was pretty and tough. I, I wanted to ask about guys from 62. Yeah. Um, Ron Hunt. Right. I tried to get Ron. The guy from 62, of course, was, was Al Jackson, who, who was a wonderful guy, and, and he was at fantasy camp, and, and he, you know, he, he, he was very funny and uh, talked about, you know, in those days, because these days, they take the pitchers out after six, seven innings, and in those days, they let them pitch longer. He pitched 15 innings in a game against the Phillies in 62, and, and, he, and he said, I, in case you want to take me out, I wouldn't come out. Right? So, you know. Was it Stu Stu Miller was on the Mets when he got blown off the mound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but uh, they had two pitchers named Stu Miller too. Right, right. Two pitchers Bob named Miller. Bobby Jones. Bob Miller. Two Bob, Bob Miller. Bob, Bob Miller. Miller. Thank you. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, Michael, congratulations on, on getting the book on the book complete. Thank done, you. Published. Thank you. Um, uh, we've talked before, but I'll tell you tell you about that in a moment. Mr. Charles, I, I just had a thought. Yeah. Uh, it's something I've thought about previously, but uh, in, in the passage of uh, Michael's book, he mentioned that you're interested in, in the business of music after your playing career. Uh, the name of the record? Buddha Records. With, yeah. with, with Blue Note? Buddha. 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 Okay. Buddha. And that was a bubblegum. I've always had the, a thought about the, the wonderful, um, your wonderful era of, of, of entertainment, of, of young black men as, as athletes, 
baseball or maybe as musicians or actors, and everybody was a brave new world for, for um, uh, young black men earning these accolades and these accomplishments. Um, and I, I always wondered where was this, this cross-pollination of where you might have been in a minor league town for 10 years and maybe crossed paths with a Jackie Wilson or a Benny King or a Sam Cooke. Do you have any oh, you had vivid your, memories of? You had your favorite, you know, uh, musicians, you know, everybody have a favorite. Yeah, you know, yeah. Singers or whatever. Uh, but my gravitation towards uh, the music industry had to do with my early training. My parents used to take, here's a good story for you. My parents used to send me out for music lessons. That's so. An instrument I loved was the trumpet. So I'm in there doing the practice session, toot, 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 toot. And the next thing I hear coming by the music hall, a bunch of kids all hooping up, making a lot of noise. They're going right out to Kelly Field to engage in a baseball game. Now this sounds more exciting to me than two two. <laughs> <laughs> so I would tell the instructor, I said, I need to go to the restroom. And the restroom happened to be right by the door where I could go right on out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I would did. I would I'd go and go on out on the field and play with the kids out there in the baseball. And not go back to the music. No, no I, oh, I called myself going back, right? Right. And then at the end of the, the session, the, the instructor would pin a note on my shirt, take it home to your mom. And a dumb man, I'm walking there, just, he just sent this note to me. <laughs> and naturally, you know, be disciplined. But uh, the way I got connected with Buddha Records was after we had won the World Series. And it was a thing about whether I was going to work for the Mets or work for Buddha. Mm -hmm. Because Buddha showed more interest. Rather than a, a Buddha outcast. And they had another president there too, Neil Bogart. And uh, at the time I was living in Kansas City. And Art made the offer for me to come in and do New York promotion for Buddha. So the salary and everything that he offered it was much more than what the Mets offered. So <laughs> I said, uh, "Okay, I'll, uh, I'll take this Buddha offer." Good for you. And uh, that's the way I got hooked up with Buddha and did New York New York promotion for him for for a year. And I get this crazy idea that I want to follow Mr. Goldberg and his memorabilia. <laughs> 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 what would happen if someone threw a slide in the Today, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I uh, signed up with Buddha for that year and then I worked with it for about almost a year, and I resigned. They, I tried to get them to stay with the company. I said, no, I'm 
got to get this, this memorabilia stuff. Opportunity not. And that went yeah. blank. Yeah. And my wife kicked me out because I didn't put all the money into it. <laughs> and she said, I'm not adjusting my lifestyle. And she, she kicked me out. But, uh, Well, you know, just like you say, it's a different type of game you're playing now, as opposed to when I was playing. We, we didn't know anything about pitch counts. When you picked up the ball, you're supposed to go nine. Program to go nine, not five. Nine seems like they program these guys say go five, oh, yeah. and they got a good day and they get they get a W. You know the team. And it don't seem fair to me. Just go five and you get a W. But that's what's happening in days. So it's like they so wired up about velocity, the speed, how fast. Oh, he's throwing 96 miles an hour. Oh, he's throwing 90. That doesn't matter. If that bat is looking for something, I don't care if you're throwing 110 miles an hour. See, it'll get you, okay? That's not pitching. That's throwing. The art of the pitching, when you think about guys like Mattis, you mentioned his thing. Remember Mattis used to pitch with his braids? Great Mattis. These type of pitches, you know, they little this, little dab with that. They keep the hitter off balance. Keep him from getting the fat part of the bat on the ball. That's pitching. Okay. So uh, today, like you were saying, five innings. You've done a good job. <laughs> Under today's climate, you probably have because the hitters, you don't have that many good hitters. I've never seen so many battles take third strikes in my life. <laughs> it's that then I said, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. The, right down the middle of the plate, this is, thank you, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> we were taught, swing the so-and-so back. <laughs> <laughs> Two strikes on you. You got to protect. You got to put the ball in play. Or before that, then you can maybe you can get the ball in your zone. You can maybe go for it. But after you get two strikes on you, you're just starting to play. You, you don't want to strike out. But these guys strike, strike out so much time, like it's a, a bad genre or something. <laughs> I've never seen it before. But it's a different game. But it's it's still a good game. Baseball, you love baseball, you love baseball. Regardless of the talent, uh, you just love the game because you're in love with the game. And uh, a lot of changes have been made. They started out with these astroturf fields, which is crazy. Hard on the players. Kept the bad manners. They used to have a Pitching mounds to be much higher than what it is now. And you, you sit there 
for the batting and he you know, he looked up at me about <laughs> <laughs> you know. And uh, they lower that because they want to get a uh, get a hitters a better chance. They wouldn't score no runs, so maybe <laughs> lower the mound the hitters have a better chance and maybe they hit the ball and get more run production in the game and stuff like that. But uh, we had to take care of ourselves as hitters. God does you all. Your pitcher take care of the situation. If a guy got taken out, like the infield, we didn't. You go back at him. that guy gets plunged? Well, you go back at him. You know, you, you, you'll, you'll get the message. You just don't, don't do anything. You got to protect your pattern. We had a situation on the Mets. When the Mets were really, when, when I was hitting, we were really getting plumped. Leon Jones, A.G., Ken Dunham, myself. This guy just gives us what we call chin beat. And our pitchers wasn't doing anything to try to retaliate. We had a meeting and we chewed, we chewed our pitchers out. We called them a bunch of guys. <laughs> if you guys don't start protecting us, you know, you know, but you, you know, so to speak, don't <laughs> expect us to die in runs. <laughs> Jerry Cruz broke that. He stepped out there and started. Then <laughs> 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 yeah. we toughen up as a team. We get mental, mental toughness. We need that. You got You don't want to be intimidated. You need that mental toughness. I don't care what, what your line of business is. You got to have a certain toughness. And that's what happened to our kids. We, we like grew up overnight. Got tough. Had a few people, you know, in Dallas, you guys, Houston, and in Cincinnati. But uh, overall, the game, you love the game. Regardless, you might not have as many. Big name stars and all that stuff. That one noticeable thing in my time, when they used the word superstar, when they attached that label to a player, you have had at least four or five consecutive productive years to get that label. They didn't pass around so free. And now you can come up and have a hat with season. They call you a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's Everybody that hits 25 home runs is Willie Mays. Right, right. There's only one Willie Mays. Right. Right. That, that was the standard back in those days. You had to do it at least four or five years. Right. But they give you that towel. Mm -hmm. All right? Uh, so now you have one good year. And one, you're getting one hundred million dollars, right? And the next <laughs> next five years, you can't even pick up the ball or whatever, <laughs> you know. But that just just goes to show you how the changes that uh, yeah, come first. About. Yeah. yeah. By the way, congratulations. Thank on you. Board. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and, um, yeah. I was at the game last night. Were you? And it was a it was a real. It brought chills and uh, to see you. And, and Ron on the mound to pitch the first, the starting on the first pitch of the game last night. That was an embarrassment for me. <laughs> 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 I said he was going to play. Yeah, but, you know, I got to say, from one of the 35,000 
job site, my group was to supervise the juvenile justice uh, responsibilities in relation to the uh, Board of Education, the teachers. It was a collaboration between the Board of Ed and the juvenile justice system. So my work site was there at the school, and I got a chance to really interact and try to motivate an average population of maybe about nine years back. And I got to really take a hard look at the kids, what's going on in their minds today. And I was, I was shocked. Because I've been so far removed from what these kids are going through nowadays. And it's a lot on them. And uh, it just gets to you. But uh, I hung in there. So happy I did because it gave me a different perspective on things, what's really important, how you relate to people and stuff like that, how you try to share yourself wherever you, you can with people. And to me, that's the mark of a, a genuine person when they can share and try to understand the other person and stuff like this. And we come along with I'm so happy to sit here and talk to you guys tonight, so I'm getting, I know you're getting bored, but, uh, no, no, no. but uh, it's just been a pleasure just being able to just talk and get Terry coming out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, getting to meet Mr. Goldberg and Mr. Primus and stuff. And uh, what else can I tell you? Eddie, I'd just like to tell you, this is also a poet and a very well known. He's known as the Mets poet. Very and good. So, uh, poet to poet, I'm oh, very happy cool. to acquaint you with each other. Is, is your poem available not online? Online. Yeah, actually, not, two of the two of his poems are on my better. website. Actually, the Jackie poem uh, and I the gave other one. Permission. I don't know why. I <laughs> gave, yeah, Ed, you did give me permission, man. But, yeah, uh, to, uh, the Jackie poem and um, another, another poem, uh, Athlete. the Athlete's Prayer, which is a, a, wow. a prayer, a, a poem he wrote when he first learned that he was going to be traded yeah. to the A's and get into yeah. the majors. It's a wonderful poem. So those both are on my website if you if you'd like to see them. Yeah. 
I'd like to say for my generation, this is the closest I've ever been to Jackie Robinson um, meeting you. And um, it's been, I, I mean, I wish my father was here because uh, he told me about you. And um, I've never met a 69 Met, so that, that's a double honor. But um, just historically speaking, my heart is touched as an African American to be able to look up to gentlemen that, that you know went out there like soldiers, you know, to represent and uh, to educate, you know, black and white and all people about, oh, you know, yeah. about oh, yeah. understanding to love your, your, your fellow brother, oh, your yeah. sister, and, and, and that uh, colored, colored, you know, not an issue. But um, for me, this is a historical moment in my life that I get to express to my kids, so I videotape and, and photograph it because um, who knows when I can meet someone like you again. So this is a, almost what one would consider, a, 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 for me at least, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. And I knew that I, I just couldn't miss it. Um, I would like to ask you, know, gentlemen like yourself, of course, I'm sure you could, you know, probably seen guys that I've only dreamed of and read books about, like, you know, Campanella and, and those guys. Um, have you ever, you know, like a guy like Satchel Page? You know, everybody talks about Jackie, Jackie's awesome. But, you know, guys like him and, and Gibson, you know, like, what was it like, you know, when you met him? Did you ever have a chance to, like, compete against him or anything like that? Who's Satchel Page? Yeah. Well, uh, I had the good fortune of getting to know him. I competed against him at the Mountain League level when I was at Vancouver, Canada, in the Pacific Coast League, my last year in the Mountain League. What's that? Satchel was... Uh, he was real potent to me, and uh, I had a chance to play against him. But let me just share this with you, if you might like this story. The final see, uh, series of the season that year was 6-1. Portland was playing as a three-game series in the Vancouver. Satchel was going to pitch one of those games. So sure enough, we had a sellout crowd, and Satchel was on the mound. Everybody wanted to see Satchel. And we had a little second baseman named Billy Consolo. And Boston signed him to a big bonus contract that he never could really pay. Billy was playing second base for us. So Billy came up, and uh, Bunny. Tried to drag Bunny in Satch. When Satch got him, he told him 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> he had Billy drag Bunny on the man, and he took off. <coughs> Satch just stood there. He didn't even to move off now. He just looked at him. <laughs> As he was running, Satch was just staring at him. Had to say, what in the hell is Captain? So now, our fans start booing our players. Billy. <laughs> oh, Billy, he pushed me, so I go, I can you bite on that old man. <laughs> <laughs> so when Billy came back to the dugout, we gave silent treatment, nobody said. <laughs> then all of a sudden everybody said, Yeah, you bush league son go this shit sitting in the humor somewhere. Yeah. Bite on that man. <laughs> and Billy said, 
Hell, I'm tired of a ball game. I can't care if he's 90 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that beat us that day. Beat us that day. And then Satchel Page. I guess you guys might have heard of Buck O'Neill. Yeah. Myself, we're all living in Kansas City. And they got a rich static in terms of uh, Negro League ball players by the city and around Kansas City. And we used to get together and uh, do things together. But Satchel, Satchel was a beautiful person. Charles Shimmer, the, the owner of the A's. Decided, well, let's, let's hire Satchel Page to come in, a promotional type of thing. Maybe it might enhance the game or something. So he hired Satchel, brought him to the team. I believe it was 65, 65 or 6 that before I came yeah. to the Mets. And I mean, me and Satchel was roommates. And uh, he tells them, Far out lies about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about a trip that he took to Africa. He and a buddy of his going bear hunting. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> he got to this little town in Alaska somewhere and decided to go out and just walk down the street and get a feel for the town. It seemed like everybody they passed by had some ugly deep uh, gashes on their face and stuff. So he asked, I said, well, where are all these people that have all these ugly gashes? So they must, <laughs> so they must have been unfair. <laughs> he said, he said, these bears in Alaska, they're very smart. <laughs> they don't want to kill you, they just want to maim you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. I mean, yeah, I mean, he had so much stuff and stuff like that. You can talk about. But uh, he pitched three innings that day against Boston. Because his Boston had Carl Yastrzemski and Tony Tendigary and all these guys. Got one hit, and Tony got came in there and got, got one hit off. Satchel throwing everything, even the loop pitch that we would let him throw when he came to the major leagues. He would throw that type of pitch and loop mm -hmm. pitch. And they were swinging and falling down at oh, It was a show, it was something to see. And all these young kids that didn't know anything about Satchel, they was in awe. They couldn't believe that this old man could do that. You know, but he was, he was a fine gentleman. Get back for the game and get back to what you were saying about Satch and a lot of these guys and why they didn't go before Jackie in terms of organized ball while they were selected when they thought they were better than Jackie. Well, <coughs> Jackie was well around. They knew that they had to have a well-rounded individual, not only baseball-wise, but education, articulate, and all that stuff was very important. And I must say that Branch Rickett did a hell of a job. Mm. Jack. That's right. A 
Alright, so to me, not only was that, but also age factor, never know. Not those guys that got to advance age and that. That might have been determined determined why they didn't strike those guys. <coughs> but like I said, guys, I've been very fortunate. I've been able to keep my <coughs> proper perspective on things in life and people and share what I can with them and work with whomever. And we have to get my report here and taken out and get in. Show we could do with it now. <laughs> to the Met Clubhouse and introduce him to Harvey, I guess. Hope he reminds me of Harvey. Look at that. Don't you think so? Yeah, he looks a little, 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 little resemblance there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, it's nice being with all of you tonight. I enjoyed this. Thank you for that comment about Ed. That was very nice. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. And I just would like to thank, thank uh, Ed Charles, the glider, the poet, and Michael Gary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.